Well, before I became a Christian, there was a few things in my life that God needed to work out. But if I were to ask any of you, is there any rule that your parents had within your household that they did not want you to break, that you broke anyways? Well, everybody in the room is going to have their hands go up in the air, right? Because there's a time or two, or maybe three or four, or maybe ten, or a hundred, where we have violated the wishes of our mom and dad. Well, oftentimes, my parents would, before I left my home, would say that classic saying of, don't get in any trouble. (laughs) But yet, it almost felt like it was a commission, right, to get into trouble. Well, on one particular weekend, my friends and I, who were overly interested in this sport, if you can call it that, of playing paintball, decided that we were going to play paintball at this awesome place in our neighborhood. And if any of you have played paintball before, you know it's a lot of fun. It's a little bit of pain, but especially for a few middle schoolers, they're going to love it. So we went to an abandoned warehouse in our neighborhood that used to repair golf carts because we lived on a golf course neighborhood. So we went there and we were playing paintball and it was abandoned. The whole place had went out of business and it was honestly the perfect place to have fun if you were a middle school kid. When, as we were playing, I looked down and I noticed this red little blinking light, and it was flashing, and I just kind of was like surprised that this light was flashing, because I thought to myself, man, this has been abandoned here for months, but why is this red light flashing? And just as I was standing up, two police cars pulled in right behind me, and of course, being the good future pastor that I would become, I went up to the officers and admitted my fault. No, what I did instead was I yelled out to all my friends, run, and we start hightailing it out of there as fast as we could. We jump on our bicycles and we scoot on our way to our house. And we end up hanging out there and not before long, the police cars start going around the neighborhood, and I have a feeling they knew who we were, but one of the police cars stop at our home and says, have you seen any kids running around here with paintball guns? And of course, again, being the wonderful future pastor that I would become, I said, nope, but I'll let you know if I do. <laughs> I don't think I was following my parents' command in my life to not get any, into trouble very well. Or maybe I was, because I didn't. <laughs> but, but the point being that we all at times in our lives have, are given a command by our father or mother, and yet we still happen to break it. Well, today we're going to talk a little bit more about that and this important picture in the book of Genesis. And this story really is one of the most well-known stories of Scripture. But oftentimes I think the message of this story is missed. And in very many ways people debate at what this story really is. Is it a mythology? Did it really happen? And I think in some ways that misses the point of what Genesis is trying to teach us and how ultimately we can trace our origins back to Adam and Eve and in this moment that we call the fall. So 
For today, what we're going to do is a little bit different, and I'm going to read the entirety of the verses to you, and then we're going to walk our way through it, because I think we're going to find a lot more meaning that way. So Genesis 3, and I'm going to be reading from verses 1 through verse 7. So Genesis 3, 1 says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the tree in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will what? You will die. You will certainly not die. Die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for giving, gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So if you didn't know, if you weren't here for any reason within the last couple of weeks of the series, Genesis 1 in some ways kind of highlights creation from the creation of the universe to the world to mankind. And then in Genesis chapter 2, we see that focus further given to God creating Adam and Eve, and we see the whole narrative of that playing out. Well, and then in Genesis chapter 3, it oddly takes a turn in a different direction. And that is, is it seems like Genesis chapter 1 and 2 are both trying to emphasize not only that God is our creator, but that God created humanity, that he made humankind in his image. And it seems like the whole entire focus of these two chapters is in some ways to be able to communicate the special privileged nature that we have both male and female in the eyes of God. But in chapter 3, we see the focus in verse 1 shifting to who? We see it shift away from Adam and Eve into what? The serpent. Some of you said that, and I just heard that now, so thank you. And it shifts all the way to the serpent. If you were here during our series that we did after the time of Easter called This Present Darkness, if you haven't listened into that series, I encourage you to do that on podcast. You would remember that we talked specifically about Satan and the kingdom of darkness. Well, if you didn't know, this word serpent in Hebrew is the word nalkash. And what that typically means is this serpent image that we get within um, 
um, within Genesis 3, a snake as we would understand it. Now, what's interesting about that is that while we do not know for certain whether this is Satan or not, we, we have good reason to believe it is. And in fact, Scripture oftentimes uses different names for what you and I might understand as the word of Satan. And, and we'll put some of those names on the list there for you. But some of the names used for Satan at times within Scripture are words like adversary, Satan, father of lies, a roaring lion, a dragon, a slanderer, a serpent, at, in which we're seeing in, in chapter 3 here. And what's interesting about this particular verse is it decides to make a description for this serpent. And if you look at verse 1, what do you see there as the description? You see that it's explained that this serpent is craftier than the rest. You see, I think what the author is trying to do here is he's trying to set us up to understand something about this serpent's character. You see, as scripture would continue to unfold, we would see that the kingdom of darkness and Satan himself or the devil or the demonic forces that be desire to pervert God's creation. They desire to create or take what is good and turn it into something evil. And oftentimes the best way to do that is to simply pervert our understanding of what we think is good. You see, so often we wrongly mistake that Satan's goal is to just place an evil thought in our minds, to be able to deceive us in that kind of way. But in reality, what Satan oftentimes does is he tries to take something good and then create what through it? A form of perversion. So let's read now in Genesis 3, 1 again. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals God had made. And he asks this question to a woman. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Did God really say you must not treat, eat from any tree in the garden? Now, there's a couple of things that should naturally come to your mind there. One of the questions should be, well, why is he talking to Eve and not Adam? Another question is, is well, what is he even asking? You see, he asks this question to Eve in my belief because he wants to begin to control the conversation. He wants, to he wants to begin to manipulate Eve into reconsidering what she knows. In some ways, it could be similar to what lawyers can do in asking questions. By creating doubts within the mind of the person who is receiving a question. Because you see, instead of asking her a yes or no question by pointing to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he does what? He asks a question 
that has almost nothing to do in, in fullness with the command that God was given. You see, he asks, is it true that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Well, you see, I believe that Satan knew, this serpent full well knew that they could eat from many trees in the garden. They just couldn't eat from that tree in the garden. And so often, I think this is the way that the enemy tries to operate. He tries to be deceitful and tries to create deception in order to make us question what we know is true. It's similar to like if I were to be told by my parents to come home before it gets dark and the serpent were to come up to me and say, did your parents really say that you couldn't go outside? No, they didn't say that. What they said is, is I shouldn't go, I need to get home before it gets dark. But by doing that, what is he doing? He's cracking a door open for me to rethink about what my parents said. C.S. Lewis wrote a fantastic book that you should put on your reading list if you've never read it before. And it's this book called The Screwtape Letters. And what he does masterfully within this book is he sets up a story in the perspective of the enemy. So there's this person in the story, this head demon in the story called Screwtape, and he's giving advice to a lesser demon called Wormwood, and he's trying to help Wormwood with his human patient. And in this book of the Screwtape letters, C.S. Lewis says, indeed, the safest road to hell giving advice to the demon, of course. The safest road to hell is a gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turning, without milestones, without signposts. And if you think about the choices in life that you have made that have led to ultimately the biggest upsets in your own life, you could probably relate to that journey, right? How oftentimes in life we go astray not by making a sudden turn, but it's the gradual compromise. It's the gradual rethinking of truth. It's the gradual decay of our minds that leads us to what we know to be wrong. It's the same thinking that we have when we look at different times of history and we ask to ourselves, how could have they let their society have done that? How could have they done that within that time period? Well, oftentimes those roads are gradual slopes. Let's listen now to how the woman replies to the serpent. Verse 2. She replies to the serpent and says, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, if we were to stop right there and I were to ask you, did she do a good job, what would you say? Yes, 
you would most likely say, yes, she got it right. She told back to the serpent God's law to her and let that be known. Now, we don't know fully in Scripture whether Eve received that law directly from God, but we know at the very least it was given to Adam. And whether or not Adam then passed that on to Eve or whether God told Eve himself, we don't know. So we have to be careful to not make assumptions there where Scripture is silent. But we know at the very least from this response that Eve had an understanding that you may even from all the trees in the surrounding garden, but you can't eat specifically from this tree of knowledge of good and evil. But what you missed here is even though she did answer correctly, what you might not have caught was that she actually over-answered the question. What do, you, what do I mean by that, Pastor Kevin? Well, you might actually miss this here, and I, hopefully I'll get it on the screen for you. But the original command from chapter 2, verse 17, says this. You must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now let's look at Eve's explanation of God's command. You must not eat from the tree in the middle of the garden, and you must not what? Touch it, or you will die. Does anywhere in the original command God say that you cannot touch the tree? No. Now, logic would dictate that you probably shouldn't touch it, right, if it's prohibited, but the act of touching it isn't what does what the act of touching it isn't what kills you it's what's what, what's the act it's eating it consuming it that will kill you now i want you to hang on to that because as we'll see later in scripture that actually proves to make a point so what is Eve doing here? Now, I don't believe Eve is sinning here, but in some ways she's adding on to God's law. And as I've tried to make a point many times within Scripture, we need to be careful with adding additional burdens onto our life that God never requires of us. Amen? That is what we call legalism. That is what we call putting a yoke of bondage on our lives that God never called us to. Now again, I don't believe Eve was sinning in this moment, but this, this addition did not prove to help her at all. So let's keep on reading. Verse 4. This is Satan's, or the serpent's response to Eve. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Knowing good and evil. You see, I think many of us wrongly believe that the tree was inherently evil. We think sometimes that God tried to tempt us with that tree. 
that he put it in the garden so that we would be tempted to make a mistake. And that if God really loved us, he wouldn't have created that tree at all. Therefore, we wouldn't have fallen. But in reality, I think that kind of thought misses the point on what it actually means to love somebody and why that tree was originally created. You see, it's my belief that the tree itself was not at all sinful. The tree did not represent evil in any way. There was, in some ways, you could say there was nothing wrong with the tree. What was wrong? Violating God's command to do what? To not eat from the tree. And we understand this oftentimes as adults or parents, that we often tell our children not to do certain things until a certain time. Now, I don't know about you, but my son Theodore, he's not ready to drive a car yet. (laughs) For one, he can't reach the pedals. (laughs) For two, he would probably destroy a lot of things in doing it. Now, he's pretty good at that RC tractor of his, but he's not ready yet. Now, is having a car inherently wrong? Now, I know there's some Amish, former Amish in this room, so you don't answer that question. But (laughs) is having a car inherently wrong? No. But the timing can matter. The timing can matter. And maybe some of you grew up with moms and dads that let you drive the, the family truck a little earlier than 16, but at least in our laws of the land, we wait for an appropriate age because we understand that vehicles under the wrong hands can do great damage and harm to other people. And if you don't take things like speed into consideration and other drivers on the road, we all probably know of somebody in our lives that has experienced some form of loss while on the road. So while we don't necessarily condemn cars, we understand that it takes a particular person in a particular time in a particular place. So in a similar way, could it be that this tree could have been something like that? That Adam and Eve just did not reach that point of maturity that God would allow them to eat that apple with. Or we don't know if it was an apple, but eat that fruit with. Could it be that maybe in the right timing, God could have allowed them to eat from that tree? We don't know, but it's very possible. And further, in order to love somebody, in my opinion, you need to be able to have the choice to not love somebody. And I think that this moment put on display Adam and Eve's commitment towards God. Because they can either choose to do what? Honor the Lord in his wishes or honor their own desires. And you see, that is a message that relates to us today, that each and every single one of us on a daily basis have a choice on whether we are going to honor the Lord or honor our own desires. 
Now, hopefully our own desires can line up as much as possible with the Lord's, but oftentimes those two things can deviate from one another, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. But what the serpent does in this situation is he tries to plant a thought in Eve's mind. He tries to convince Eve that by eating the tree, she will not die. But that instead, God is actually withholding something from Adam and Eve. That he's withholding this wisdom and this knowledge that they would experience from eating the tree. And you see, that is a ploy that Satan still uses today. You see, any time we commit a sin, we often think that we need that in our lives. We need to commit that sin in our lives. Otherwise, what's going to happen? We're going to miss out. And so many of us wrongly think and believe that the only way to experience the fullness of life is to betray God at his word in order to have what we desire. Think about your own life and the choices that you make. And know this, that if there is something in your life that you know is contrary to God's word, get it out of your mind that you're missing out by violating it. Everything that God has for you is meant to bring goodness into your life. It's meant for your benefit, to build you up, to allow you to receive all the beautiful blessings that he promises us and that he desires for us. It's only when we accept the lies of the enemy and believe that somehow God is withholding from us that we find ourselves in trouble. So in verse 6, what happens next? When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eyes and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it. And she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Now, there's a lot of things that happen there that I want to touch on. She did what in that moment? She started to believe the lie that the serpent told her above the truth of what God commanded for her. And she began to look at this fruit differently. Don't we do the same? Don't we oftentimes latch and dwell on the things that we desire, that we know violate God's laws and his words to us? And that image of that object, that thing, that person, that desire, whatever it might be, starts to look a little different. It starts to look more pleasing in our lives. 
It starts to look more desirable in our lives. And maybe we don't act upon it immediately, but it builds and builds and builds and builds to where it's hard to not gaze at it, to where everything it feels like that we have and that we've been given is just not as appealing. You know, I have this beautiful thing that I wear every day of my life. Other than when my hand swells at night, sometimes I take it off. (laughs) And this beautiful ring here just represents a covenant that I've made to a woman that's very special to me. And of course, you know I'm speaking on Michaela. And this ring represents a commitment that I've made to her to forsake all others and to keep my eyes on her. Now we know that within this day and age, many people violate these little covenants that we place on our rings. And I would say to you that oftentimes the case for the reason why that happens is because for whatever reason in our relationships, we decide to desire other things than the person we've committed ourselves to. Now, don't get me wrong, there's a lot there that we would need to unpack, and I'm speaking towards generalities. But at least in my life, I've made a commitment to keep my eyes, romantically that is, for my wife. Which means that I don't do certain things, and I don't entertain certain things in order to protect that covenant with my wife. We need to, when we're thinking about our own lives, in some ways set ourselves up to protect the things that God is calling us to. Where we don't even allow ourselves to be entertained towards things that can get us onto that gradual slope of descent towards sin. Amen? And that is a challenge for all of us. Now what you may have also noticed within this passage of verse 6 is who else was there? Up until this point, it would be okay for you to assume that the serpent was exclusively talking to Eve. But we see very plainly in verse 6 that after Eve ate it, she gave it to her husband who was with her. Adam was there the entire time that this whole entire dialogue was unfolding with Eve. And he did what? Nothing. So often we think about sins of commission, right? We think about the ways that we have done wrong in this world. Maybe I treated somebody poorly in an ungodly way. 
Maybe I did something that was against God's law. I stole, I had anger and rage towards somebody and I took that out on them through word and deed or, or you know, whatever it might be that you know has happened in your life, either through your own hand or through the hand of somebody else onto you. And those are sins. But we also need to think of the sins of omission. And that is, is when we are called to do something in life and yet we do not do that that thing that we are called to and I would even say the good thing that we are called to do if God has given me the capacity to be able to save somebody and I don't do nothing about it there could be some wrongdoing in my life it would be similar to if I was on a boat with a group of people and I saw that there was a hole in the boat and water coming in and instead of saying something, I just allowed the water to continue to fill. In some ways, you could say that I am at fault, right? that I am just as wrong as the leak that exists in that boat for not allowing other people the opportunity to do something that could make a difference. Adam could have done something all along those moments to make a difference for humanity, to make a difference for his wife, and to make a difference for himself. And he chose not to. So while Eve is just as at fault as Adam for entertaining the conversation, for plucking the fruit from the tree, from eating that fruit and passing it along to her husband, all of those things were wrong and she shouldn't have done that. Adam was also wrong in staying silent and not doing a thing. Maybe you're the kind of person that falls under that category. Maybe there has been times in your own life where God has called you to act and you know he has and you stayed silent. We need to be careful with both. And we need to recognize both can happen within our lives. Sins of commission in sins of omission. But reality is, is that the reason why I believe that Adam and Eve fell in this moment is because they fell as a result of pride in their life. And if you think about it, most sins are committed for the same reason today. And that is, is that we oftentimes think our ways are better than God's ways. Do we not? I mean, if you think about it, if you know, for instance, God gives you a command, do not steal or, or, or whatever it might be, do not covet or, 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 or you know what you've gone through in your life. When we violate those commands, it's because we believe that our ways are better than God's ways. It ends in verse 7 by saying this, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, 
So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings from themselves. You see, sin has a way of changing who you are, changing the way that you think. And what was once beautiful and innocent now became shameful in their lives. And just as I made a point of last week, the beauty of the nakedness that we see in the garden narrative isn't just to get a whole bunch of middle school boys to say amen, but in reality it's that we can be the truest version of who God created us to be to each other. And here we see that that starts to be hidden now in our lives through Adam and Eve's fall. They lost their inner sense. They lost their perspective. And my big idea for each of you today is this question instead of a command for you. Is who is Lord over your life? Who is Lord over your life? You see, it did not matter that the serpent tried to deceive Adam and Eve. Yes, that is important to take note of. Yes, God would eventually, as we will see, make consequences for the serpent, and we need to acknowledge that. But ultimately, the decision to betray God or not was in the hands of Adam and Eve. And like that today, we need to consider our choices and our actions, and we need to think through our own lives and ask the questions, is this decision that I make honoring God or just honoring myself? Is God truly the Lord of my life or am I the Lord of this life? One of the things that eats me up inside so often is, is I'm constantly wondering, God, I know that there are people of faith within this country and within this world. Why isn't, why aren't they all standing up for you? Why aren't they taking the Great Commission seriously and building the church and getting involved and doing the things that you call us to do, Lord? Well, I think a part of that is, is because people oftentimes are just motivated by their own self-interest apart from whatever God is calling them to do. And so we fall into Satan's trap of just wanting life to revolve around what we desire versus what God calls us to. But here's the beautiful thing, and this is what Adam and Eve missed, is that if they would have honored God, God would have continued to honor and bless them. They were already blessed. They just didn't in that moment see it fully, and they believed the lie that there was something that they were missing. Church, we need to take sin seriously. We need to take God's word seriously. And we need to ask ourselves daily, who is the Lord of our lives? Let's pray.